This is Intertractional, an exploration of Star Trek through an intersectional feminist lens. Star Trek is both a reflection of our society and an aspiration for our future. The stories it tells shape our world. Intersectionality explores intersecting forms of oppression and how they affect individuals with compound identities. Star Trek is for feminists. Captain's Log. So, exciting announcement. We set up a PayPal account so that you can donate to Intertractional and support us and help keep us on the air. We are doing this for free and we uh, love doing it, but we can't do it forever unless it makes some dollars. Um, so please send us some money at uh, paypal.me slash federation and fempire. Empire is like empire with an F at the beginning because it's our lady empire. $8 buys two of us coffee for a day. $108 buys us podcast hosting for a year. Um, also, we need to pay rent. So help. Yeah. And like we could get a second microphone. We could buy uh, Facebook or Instagram ads so that other people will find this podcast and we can keep making it and maybe get real sponsors. So much love. Yeah. Will be had for all all those who send us money. Yeah. And if you uh, want us to, we can uh, give you a shout out on the air, quote unquote. PayPal.me slash Federation and Fempire. Thank you. All right. That's it for Captain's Log, our new segment where we advertise ourselves. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Becca. Welcome back to Intertractional. This week, we're going to talk about Michael Burnham and Lieutenant Uhura. This is an episode we've been wanting to do for a while, I think, Uh, like just ever since we watched Discovery. We were like, okay, so this is a thing that Discovery is doing that's great. Discovery's main character is a woman of color. Yes. A black woman. Let's compare that to what the original series, like the first thing that Star Trek was thinking about black women. The episodes that we chose both have our uh, characters of interests uh, making out. Yes, these <laughs> we chose the kissing episodes. Uh, partially like because of the historic nature of Uhura and Spock. Not Uhura and Spock. I'm thinking of the movies. Yeah. Of Uhura and Kirk's kiss, but partially just because... The episode where Michael and Ash Tyler kiss is, like, I think legitimately the best episode of season one of Discovery. Or at least yeah. it's my favorite. Yeah, it's far and away the most enjoyable, most watchable. It um, doesn't have any Klingons talking through their prosthetic teeth. Yes. <laughs> or, like, weird fonted uh, Klingon subtitles. What a, um, what a choice. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I mean, their Discovery is a pretty controversial show. Some people really love it and some people really hate it. Um, I will say it unequivocally gets better in season two. Oh, yeah. And if you were sort of lukewarm on season one, uh, just like skip ahead, but maybe watch this episode. It's great. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I wanted to say something else. Oh, yeah. So we're white. It's true. Uh, Ish. We're white. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm white. I'm religiously Jewish. And uh, I'm white passing um, yeah. and as a Sephardic Jew. And uh, so obviously what we have to say about 
the experience of being an African-American woman or a black woman of the Federation in space is limited by our own perspectives. Mm -hmm. Uh, However, we felt like this was a really important topic and wanted to talk about it anyway. Um, I mean, especially since we're intertractional Mm -hmm. and... uh, Yeah, and intersectional, the term was invented to highlight the, like, unique experience of black women because they are both black and women. The original term, which was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw, is referring to legal chicanery in a series of um, discrimination cases that made it impossible for black women to... To prove that they were being discriminated against because black men were being hired and women were being hired, but Mm -hmm. black women were not, or black women who were hired were being discriminated against or something. Like, they were in... It was to prove that there was a different category of oppression because there were overlapping oppressions. Right. So considering the origin of the term, we we felt like we should not ignore our... um, black female characters just because we are not the ideal people to talk about them Mm -hmm. that being said like we're gonna do our best and if you think we missed something or that we're totally way off like please let us know hit it up hit us up like give us a different perspective like we would be happy to be called in and uh give a correction yeah absolutely like part of our journey as feminists who believe that the intersectional perspective is a necessary one is that we want to be informed in order to improve our own opinions, our own mm-hmm. perspectives um, by the experiences of, of people who fall into these categories that we do not. Which is not to say that we are demanding that labor from you, no. only that if it is something that you would like to give, that we are open to receiving it. Should we do our episode summaries? Yeah, let's do it. We watched Plato's Stepchildren, which is season three, episode 10 of the original series. Or episode 12, depending on whether or not you're watching it on Netflix. Yeah, I don't know. The internet says episode 12. It is episode 10 on Netflix. So, but the the title is Plato's Stepchildren. That's how you know you have the right episode. Kirk, Spock, and Dr. McCoy visit the planet Platonius, heeding a distress call. They are greeted by Alexander, a person with dwarfism, who explains that they are the Platonians. They left their planet before their star went nova and lived on Earth during the time of Plato before leaving and settling here. Everyone is dressed in Gresham robes. Dr. McCoy is there to treat Parman, the ruler, whose leg is suffering from an infection. Because all the Plutonians have telekinetic abilities, except for Alexander, they have little immune resistance. Parman's wife explains that they are over 2,000 years old and the result of a mass eugenics program. We learn that Alexander acts as everyone's slave and is routinely mocked and abused. The Platonians ask McCoy to stay on as their doctor, and when he refuses, they keep all three members of the away team captive and begin to torture them through humiliation, mostly by controlling them with their minds and forcing them to dance, sing, and perform poetry by Lewis Carroll. (laughs) McCoy discovers that their powers come from a chemical in their food and injects the party with that chemical. While they are waiting for the chemical to kick in, Nurse Chapel and Lieutenant Uhura are force-beamed down and, in the episode's climax, are forced to kiss Spock and Kirk, respectively. Kirk's powers finally kick in just before he and Spock are forced to whip and beat the women, right when Alexander and Parman are struggling over a knife. 
The Enterprise crew is able to escape, taking Alexander with them. They let the Plutonians off with a stern warning to knock it off and stop kidnapping people. Intertractions. While they don't age, there seem to be only one woman who looks pretty young while all the men look middle-aged. Uh, Kirk is kind of patronizing towards Alexander, even as he explains that where he is from, everyone is equal. And uh, we also wanted to give some other random notes this week. Spock can sing really well, and yeah. it's lovely. Yeah. Um, how do the Plutonians know about the Jabberwocky from Alice in Wonderland? <laughs> that was many centuries after Plato. It doesn't make sense. Uh, their utopian society is not a utopia and has extremely little to do with the text of Plato's Republic. Um, and then everyone just brushes past the eugenics program. But, like, honestly... The away team should have known they were evil, like, as soon as they mentioned that they had a eugenics program and seemed kind of cool with it. Word. Yeah, so the Discovery episode that we watched is called Magic to Make the Sanest Man Go Mad, Season 1, Episode 7. It aired October 2017. Uh, just like if you haven't watched Discovery yet, spoiler warning for this episode, we are going to be talking about things that take place after this episode. Mm -hmm. So if you don't want to know those things, um, I don't know, maybe go watch all of Discovery. Yeah. Uh, I don't think we're spoiling too much past season one, though. Cool. Good note. The Discovery crew is having a party to let off steam, and Michael is anxious about attending due to her inexperienceless socializing. Tilly, on the other hand, is raging <laughs> and drunkenly encourages Michael to hit on Ash Tyler. But as soon as she starts the conversation, awkwardly, the lights flicker and they are both summoned to the bridge. On the way, they encounter Stamets, apparently out of his mind and or tripping, whom Hugh is trying to get to come back to sickbay. On the bridge, they learn that Discovery has detected an injured Gormangander, aka Space Whale, which regulations require that they bring on board. This turns out to be a ploy by Harcourt Fenton Mudd, who is determined to capture Discovery in order to sell it to the Klingons. Events ensue which lead to the ship's destruction, but all is not lost, for Mud has trapped the ship in a time loop. Stamets's tripping behavior is actually due to his being the only person, besides Mud, who knows the time loop is happening. As he explains to Burnham, he has tried repeatedly to stop Mud from destroying the ship, but fails every time until he realizes he needs Burnham and Tyler to be in on it, which he can only get to work by convincing Michael to reveal her feelings for Ash. She does, and then they make out. They ultimately foil Mud's attempt by welcoming him to take command of the ship, but they've set the captain's chair to send Mud's message not to the Klingons, but to his abandoned fiancé, Stella. At the end of the episode, Ash laments that he and Michael missed their first kiss. Aww. Uh, some interjections from this episode. Tilly hits on her sexy Asian crewmate, uh, Lieutenant Reese, who is played by Patrick Kwok Chun. Um, Mud refers to the blackmail bridge officer dismissively as random communications officer man. Uh, this is, in fact, Lieutenant B.A. Bryce, played by Ronnie Rowe Jr. Um, Stella, his fiance, is played by Catherine Barrel who also plays Officer Hot on Winona Earp, who is a lesbian in a relationship with Winona's sister, Waverly Earp. Um, everybody should be watching Winona Earp. I didn't even know this existed. 
Her name is Officer Hot. Her name is Officer Hot. <laughs> She's really hot. Um, and finally, Stamets uh, tells the story of how he and Hugh fell in love while trying to teach Burnham how to tell Tyler how she feels. Um, and then some, a couple other random notes. Uh, we should all have known that Lorca was from the Mirror Universe when we saw his private research area, a.k.a. his armory full of sadistic weapons. Um, and uh, at some point we learned that Betazoids have banks, so maybe that means that not every member of the Federation is communist. Interesting. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sonequa Martin-Green, she kills it because she like totally, she does the Vulcan thing so well, but then she gets like these soft looks on her face and looks like she's about to cry and is like very vulnerable. And she's just like, she's amazing. It's great casting. We love her. Yay! Michael Burnham, Sonequa Martin-Green. Yes. She fucking rocks. Yes. Nichelle Nichols like said to Sonequa Martin-Green, like, this is your time now. Enjoy it. Yes. Which we don't have on video, but Sonequa Martin-Green has repeated this in many interviews because she was apparently very pleased that this was sent to her and wanted to tell everyone. Yay. Love it. So as we set out to compare kind of Uhura and Burnham um, through and, and having chosen these two episodes, me as the original series noob, I was like, fuck. Uhura's in this episode for five minutes at the end. Yeah, 35 minutes go by before she shows up. And this kiss that's like touted as being very like revolutionary for its time is coerced. Yeah. Like it's totally forced, not consensual. And it's, it. I was like under the impression that it was very romantic and that it had been something like happy and good. And yeah. instead, we get this framing of they're, they're totally forced to do it. I hate to say this as, like, the co- response to that, because that is a completely valid point and what I want to spend way more time talking about. But, like, we do acknowledge that this was a very important moment in American television. Um, there arguably had been earlier interracial kisses, but this was the first one between a white person and a black person mm-hmm. in a scripted series. Uh, and they had to do a lot of things just to like even get it on the air. They had to film an alternate take where they didn't kiss that could be aired in Southern states that, um, Bill Shatner and Nichelle Nichols deliberately flubbed over and over again, uh, so that they could like, I think in, in the close up, his eyes were crossed in one shot. Um, he kept like acting really poorly on purpose uh they they were just deliberately sabotaging it so that it would be unusable Mm -hmm. um which is admirable and uh gene roddenberry had to like argue with producers to get it on the air at all and uh this is a big deal that being said it's really sad that the only way they could do something like this is in this fucked up context Mm -hmm. i mean good on the star trek not the Star Trek producers, good on everybody else, the cast and the crew and Gene Roddenberry for um, recognizing kind of the importance of breaking this barrier. Mm -hmm. I I here, looking from a 2019 perspective, um, am disappointed by the context, but, but still it is laudable and like one of the things 
that makes Star Trek so important is that it does push these boundaries. Yes. Yeah. No, it's it's an extremely it's an extremely disappointing thing to realize, especially if you've only ever heard about it. Yeah. Um, you know, I watched it for the first time a few years ago. Hmm. So I didn't feel that as much going into this episode because I knew it was that way. But I, I do remember being shocked um, that they were... So these aliens have mind control and they essentially force the two of them to embrace and then kiss. And they are resisting because it's a violation. Yeah. Like, or at least they it's have... some sort of third party form of rape. Right. Or something. However it is that they're being forced to do it, it is a sexual assault on both of them. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think, and like even when, I think when Spock and Nurse Chapel are about to kiss, he apologizes to her. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she's so devastated because another thing that I learned about the original series is that Nurse Chapel is like totally hot for Spock. Oh and yeah, she's, she's like, obsessed with him. She's like, this isn't how I wanted this to happen. Yeah, it's so sad. Yeah, and, he, and I think part of his apology is that and like part of his apology is just like, I'm about to, like he sees it in this very gendered way, like I'm about to violate you mm-hmm. and I'm sorry because that's not really what's happening. But like she knows that. Kirk and Ahura, their scene goes a little bit differently Ahura does a lot of like comforting herself and I've had all these moments with you on the ship Hmm. and I was always comforted by your presence and you helped me feel brave and right now I'm going to be brave. I'm so frightened, Captain. I'm so very frightened. That's the way they want you to feel. Makes them think that they're alive. I know it. But... I wish I could stop trembling. Try not to think of them. (laughs) Try. I'm thinking. I'm thinking of all the times on the Enterprise when I was scared to death. see you so busy at your command and I would hear your voice from all parts of the ship and my fears would fade and now they're making me tremble but I'm not afraid I am not afraid yeah and Michelle Nichols is just like her face she does such beautiful face acting like she's a frightened and she's moved and like maybe she's gonna cry but like also she's connecting with him and it's it's so good and like you understand why she as an actress was really frustrated with the series and uh because they don't really give her a lot of moments to do this Mm -hmm. and i found it very sweet their little moment together before they're like faces get mashed together is as sweet as can be in the context that it's in as frustrating once again as frustrating as it is it's like important that it happened sure Um, i mean lean into the frustrating part yeah like we but i think what's interesting like what i the major takeaway that i got from watching these two episodes side by side is how little uhura features at all in this episode 
Or really kind of any original series episode, frankly. Yeah, it was very hard for us to pick an episode to talk about Uhura. Like, this one leapt to mind because I was like, oh, she's got this emotional moment. Mm -hmm. And she has an experience as an individual that focuses on her perspective in it. So let's do that one. And then when I watched it, I was like, oh, no, it's not very long. She's only in this episode for a second. And I went back and tried to find any other episode that she really features heavily in. And there isn't really one. There's there's a lot where she's on the bridge um, having dialogue. She does her job really well. They're always interacting with her. But it's not like the next generation where there's like an episode featuring Beverly or an episode featuring Troy. Like that just, she doesn't get that. Yeah. At any point. Michelle Nichols has in interviews stated that she wanted to leave the show after the first season because she was getting nothing to do. And Martin Luther King convinced her to stay. Yeah, which, you know, like, of course you would if Martin Luther King came to talk to you. And he's like, you being on screen at all is important, which was true. Absolutely true. But it must have been very boring for her as an actress. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's I think it's true of a lot of women's roles at that time period and for a lot of film and television history and compared to the the other woman who we actually see for more minutes in this episode but most of what she does is like kind of smirk yes (laughs) yeah yeah and like her role in this utopia is to be a wife right but yeah, yeah so contrasting uhura's like minimal presence in this episode with burnham's like she drives the story for most of discovery but very especially in this episode she has a, a big emotional arc that arc that journey is the primary plot driver of the episode we get to hear from her voice both as the personal log at the beginning and the end of the episode um yeah it all yeah, it, yeah like it has the feeling of being narration because the personal log is so personal, like, we both had to check, like, was it a personal log or was she just narrating the episode? Mm. Um, it's very much bookended from her private thoughts. Two of the her, her main buddies, um, Tilly and Stamets, most of what they do in this episode is encourage her to pursue her romantic dreams. Like, yeah. they're, they're there to help her develop emotionally. She's, she's the center of attention. It's very clear. And it's a it's just like a stark difference and a vast improvement. Like, I think another thing that's interesting, contrasting the fact that she, Burnham goes on this emotional arc from being like very reticent about having any feelings whatsoever to like being able to say like, I like you, let's make out essentially versus in Plato's stepchildren when Uhura and Nurse Chapel show up and when they're in this scene where they're both going to be forced to to kiss their superior officers, they display fear and sadness, Mm -hmm. which the men in the episode who have been tortured and have been like in this lousy situation for significantly longer, the emotion that they get to demonstrate is anger. Yes. They have a really nice man moment. Spock, who, you know, suppresses all of his emotions as a Vulcan is forced to laugh and cry. And afterward, the men of the episode kind of check in with him and they're like, are you okay, dude? 
he's not he's not okay but he kind of like walks them through like i'm getting to be okay i'm very angry and kirk is like i am very angry and mccoy is like i am very angry and he's like gentlemen we must all deal with our anger you must release yours as, as i must master mine it is really sweet that there's a room full of men talking about their feelings and taking care of each other but it's shitty that that is the only feeling they get to talk about in this situation whereas like as you were just saying the women show up and get to be the owners of the feelings Mm -hmm. yeah and as soon as they show up the the men perform strength and protection towards them they're like being the the rock and it's like this is a traumatic experience that they're going through all of them together and this particular demonstration of strength in this way does not have to be inherently male Mm. Um, Mm. but it's definitely presented that way it shows some of the limitations of traditional masculinity Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, they they have an even smaller range of emotions once the women are there yeah so other things that are weird about this scene this table gets wheeled out with a whole bunch of like whips and chains and BDSM equipment. Oh yeah, it's so weird. So first of all, everyone's freaking out about kissing, mm-hmm. um, which seems kind of minor after like all the other goofy shit they've had to do, like being thrashed around the room and wrestle each other and perform as Tweedledee and Tweedledum. And then they're like freaking out over kissing, which you know, okay, is a sexual violation, but like you'd think that they were about to fuck mm-hmm. the way that they're acting and then that's immediately followed up with like and here's your torture devices to use on each other it's ve- it's, it's very, very kinky and like kinky presented in a like super negative context and while spock wields a hot poker at nurse chapel kirk wields a whip at uhura yeah, yeah, which this is the 1960s that we're in the middle of like civil rights, second period of reconstruction in the United States. This is a very, very loaded image to have a white man wielding a whip at a black woman. And it's also very disappointing to be like, we made such a great episode. We have an interracial kiss, but like seconds later, he's gonna attempt to whip her. So. Mm. It's upsetting. Yeah. It's upsetting. (laughs) He doesn't actually whip her, though. He just kind of whips the air around her. Yeah. There's a lot of whip cracking, which I I enjoy the sound of a cracking whip, but not in a coerced, non-consensual context. (laughs) Yeah, I'm just saying I guess it could have been worse, but I I am very disappointed in the writers on that point yeah i mean they like, even they, could have just traded instruments and it would have been less problematic totally yeah it could it certainly could have been worse like we could have seen her actually have like a whip mark or like an open slash on her back like yeah. that doesn't happen and that's better thank god um but yeah it's it's it's, it's like all of these Images and symbols and the context of which they're in um, that adds up to being, like, super cringy. Yeah. 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 I was gonna. I was wondering if you were going to say cringy. <laughs> like the youth say. Like the youths. Like the youths. Am I a um, youth? According to, according to, um, what's her face, the, the Plutonian blonde lady. Yes. Um, 
she at one point she interacts with uh, Kirk and Spock and, and McCoy and is oh. like, oh, can you guess how old I am? And they kind of hesitantly say, um, uh, 35. And then she's like super fucking offended that they think that she might be over 30 when yeah. in fact she's like 2,000 years old. And it's just like, this is not what women care about. Or like it is is like one of the things that I find really frustrating among so many cultural notions about womanhood is this concept that we lie about our age because being old is like a curse to be avoided and to be shamed of and to be like hidden as much as possible and it totally plays into this overarching narrative that women are deceitful when Uh we're like taught to lie about this shit yeah and uh i mean there's so there's so much tied up in that like that our our value is in our appearance and that we want to be like incompetent beautiful children as opposed to like accomplished adults yeah yeah (sighs) And as someone who is about to turn 35, I felt very personally attacked. <laughs> yeah. I, I think we wanted to talk about Alexander. Yeah. Before we're done. Absolutely. So Alexander is the, the little person who is on Plutonius. He's the only one without powers. All the other Plutonians are uh, constantly, like, using their minds to, like, pull him from room to room and being mean to him and making fun of him and making him the court jester, as I think the word that he uses. He's routinely tortured and abused and enslaved. He states that the only reason that he's even alive is as a tool of amusement for these eugenics-derived super beings. He has been in this situation for a really fucking long time without any evidence that life could be any other possible way. And then as soon as he encounters Spock and Kirk and McCoy, he's like, oh, there are people who don't have these psychokinetic powers who are um, independent and free and traveling about space. Please take me with you. He has what I think is the common response to being in a traumatic abusive situation which is that he just wants to get out he wants to get out of it and go live his life somewhere else doing something else he has no desire to wreak punishment upon his his captors his abusers he just wants to be free what in my mind I contrast this with is like the Killmonger argument, right? Mm-hmm. Where uh, Killmonger in Black Panther is all about getting the Wakandans to wage war in order to um, retaliate for centuries of oppression. You know, it's a complicated... It, one of the reasons that I love Black Panther as a film is because that it does pose this complicated moral quandary. It makes Killmonger pretty sympathetic. Yeah. To, and appealing to the audience. Like, he, they give that perspective a lot of voice. There's a lot of reasons to, to be sympathetic about that. But on the whole, 
people who have been abused and oppressed are much more interested in gaining freedom and working past their trauma to live their lives than they are to go back and inflict trauma on um, people who are their abusers. On their abusers. One of the gross things about white supremacy and the notion of elevating people of color and women and other uh, groups who have been oppressed is that they will then like flip the scales and rain these abuses down on white men. And it's like, we're not interested in that. We're interested in equality and equal treatment and not having our bodily autonomy violated on a regular basis. We're not fucking interested in in being you. We just want to be ourselves. Yeah. You know? Um, so I gravitated towards Alexander as a character because I felt like his message was really beautiful and that... Also, the actor who plays him is, like, really great. Yeah, he does a really good job. Yeah. I was just going to say. Like, he he's really compelling. And then, weird, weirdly, the actress who, who plays the wife, who seems to have, like, one expression through the whole episode, like, goes on to win an Emmy later. <laughs> yeah, she is given barely anything to do. She gets to be offended because they think she's 35. And she gets to smirk. And it's oh. just like, mm, mm. Maybe this is a good time to take a break. Okay. Do you love the city? Do you love soccer? Do you love helping others? So do we. San Francisco City Football Club is the supporter-owned soccer team in San Francisco, and we believe soccer should be built by and for the community. A sports team has a greater mission than just the game. It is to do good through the game. Our soccer club and our fans donate their time, money, and talents to helping those in need both here and around the world. SF City brings people together to enjoy the beautiful game at historic Kizar Stadium in the heart of San Francisco, the most beautiful city in the world. Become a part of the city and support affordable, democratic, community-driven sports entertainment in San Francisco. To find out more, visit us at sfcityfc.com. Woo! Soccer fans! <laughs> soccer time! Soccer fun! Woo! <laughs> Welcome back! Welcome back! I wanted to talk more about Burnham's emotional state. Okay, because, so, she was raised on Vulcan. And is very smart and very awkward and is just, like, not at all in touch with her feelings. Um, I thought it was really fun to watch the time loop happen again and again as she gradually improves her interactions with Tyler. Mm-hmm. Um, like, he comes over to ask her to dance and she accidentally insults him. <laughs> Even though she likes him. Yeah. Like, she just has uh, very little ability to interact uh, to express her emotions. And we see men in this episode, like Tyler makes this grand speech for everyone to give cheers to. And like, uh, Stamets is like, tell you know, talking to her about like, this is how you express your feelings. This is what you do when you like someone. This is how you dance. And uh, she's just like very 
confused and doesn't understand small talk and doesn't understand flirting. And I related to this so hard. Mm. Like, which he just is like, so I heard you were tortured in a Klingon prison. So I hear you were locked up in that Klingon prison cell with hairy mud. Not one for small talk, are you? I've never understood it, really. But I've realized that relationships are built on honesty. So here it is. Harry Mudd is here. And in a few minutes, he's going to take over this ship. He wants to sell it to the Klingons. He's already trapped us in a time loop. Harry Mudd? <laughs> Wait, is this Vulcan humor? I wish it were. And why didn't Stamus come to me himself? He tried in previous loops. But he felt like you'd have an easier time trusting me. Why is that? Because I like you. And he thinks you like me too. This night's gotten weird. But also very interesting. <laughs> yes, he's, he's so fucking awkward. While they're dancing. And... Uh, he's like, wow, you really don't do small talk. And she's like, I don't understand it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is me flirting. Yeah. And she's just like, I like you. And I was like, this is exactly how I've handled every successful relationship that I've been in. And I'm just like, I'm going to awkwardly tell you I like you and see what happens. Well, seems like so. it's effective. It's certainly effective in this episode. Yeah. So, so maybe that's the secret. I've never been good at flirting. I can't tell when people are into me. I can't tell, like whatever yeah, no. I feel like I'm I feel like people think I'm flirting when I'm not and that I don't know how to flirt when I'm trying to it's yeah. what is this game yeah yeah so you're good at flirting with your friends maybe <laughs> on accident accidentally yeah accidentally um yeah so kids <laughs> if anybody if wants you're... to come and give us flirting lessons yeah. like maybe that's on the docket yeah it, yeah, if you're awkward and terrible at flirting, just like start saying honest things and be like, I'm attracted to you and see what happens. Mm, mm, mm. Um, but yeah, so it, it was an interesting gender play, I guess, is where I was going with that. And uh, rewarding in its own right, whether or not I related to it. Mm-hmm. Can we just talk about for a second how good this episode is? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I really like this this episode of Discovery. Um, as we've previously stated, it's definitely the best episode of the first season. Um, but on top of that, it really has the, like, kind of mad caper energy that I love about Star Trek. I'm such a fucking sucker for time travel bullshit. Like, chicanery. I'm into it. I... I love Stamets' mushroom trip personality. Yeah. Yeah, he's very he's very cheerful and loving when he first shows up. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. I'm sorry, Lieutenant. I'm sorry, Dr. Colbert. Why would you apologize for a random act of physical interaction? You know, these are the moments that make life so gloriously unpredictable you're a very tall man probably induced from the spore drive and his confusion because of the because he gets extremely grumpy although still fun and wacky once he realizes that they're caught in a time loop 
he calms down a little bit or is like less cheerful. He's less cheerful because he's like, I think his perspective time is that he's been, okay, so there was something like 53 or 54 loops and they're all mm-hmm. half an hour. Mm-hmm. So that's a fucking long time if if you are going through it linearly to have been trying to convince all of your like not in the know crewmates to stop dying. Yes. Yeah, yeah, he get, he gets very frustrated and yet has the time to I mean it's for the plot but has the time to like heal Michael's love life and uh set up her and Ash Tyler. Yeah. Um That's really cute. Yeah. I want to talk about more th- that more in a second, but I just like Rain Wilson hmm. who, who Dwight from the office plays Harry Mudd, a classic TOS villain and he is so good he is he's like one of those villains that you love like he's compelling to watch he's constantly like announcing his plans and like making fun of other people and like doing witty asides and he's just like never off (laughs) did you miss me as much as I missed you my did you really think that you could leave me to rot in a Klingon prison and not suffer any repercussions? As soon as I find out what's so special about your ship, I'm gonna sell it to the Klingons. Do you hear me, Captain? I'm going to sell your ship to your mortal enemy. And in so doing, destroy any chance your Federation has of winning this war. When you left me behind with the Klingons, you robbed me of my dear, sweet Stella. The only woman I have ever loved. And I will have my revenge. Also, I'm gonna kill you as many times as possible. I I just, I I love- Also, his outfit looks like the tick. (laughs) Yeah, oh yeah, he's got this like funny, like helmet at the beginning. (laughs) He arrives in the belly of a space whale. Yeah, he arrives in the belly of a space whale. It's just, oh, it's, he's, he's fantastic. Yeah, they definitely picked a good, like, canon character to bring in for this episode. And I think that, like, one of the reasons that it ends up being so good is that they have... So, they both have some constraints around this character because this is an extant character. Mm -hmm. And they have... a Like, because they're bringing a character in from the original series, it just brings a totally different energy from what the rest of what's happening in season one. It's, yeah, it's great. It's really just kind of wacky and fun, and they solve the problems. Yeah. Yeah. It does get really dark for a second, though, Mm -hmm. because uh, after they have their hot, sexy time dance and realize that they like each other and make out... uh, Harry Mudd immediately kills Ash Tyler with weaponized dark matter. And Michael is, like, devastated, Mm. especially because we learned earlier in this episode that she's never been in love. And immediately, okay, not immediately, like, it takes her a few scenes to formulate this plan, but kills herself in order to prevent Harry Mudd from, like, restarting the time loop. Not no, quite. no, in order to prevent him from stopping the time loop. Right. She so wants she, him to restart the time loop. She wants him to restart the time loop in part because in that particular loop, Ash has already been killed. Also, he like had like hailed the Klingons. So he was like, why would I restart the time loop? I got everything I wanted out of this. Who cares if your boyfriend is dead? And who the fuck are you anyway? 
Um, I think one of the things, one of the reasons that I thought that it was necessary to point out that Lieutenant Bryce is dismissed as a uh, random communications officer man also ties in with the fact that Mudd um, entirely assumes that Burnham is insignificant yeah. until she reveals her name, you know, as the, like instigator of the Klingon human war. Sure. And just for anyone who's going to call us out, like we know that there's an in-universe explanation. Like he's like, I checked the officer's log. You're a nobody. But the only other person he calls a nobody is Bryce. And there is this racial commonality Mm -hmm. in these two situations. But yeah, so she reminds him how valuable she is to the Klingons. And then very bravely kills herself. Yeah, in what is billed as the most painful way to die. Yes. She does say that it's for Tyler, even though we we know it's for these other reasons, but she's like, Lieutenant Tyler. And it's like, wow, in a half hour, you've gone from not admitting that you like this person to, like, killing yourself to save them. I'm not going to say it's not believable. It's just intense. Well, I think it's... I think it fits in with the rest of her characterization, which is that she... um, she arrives at convictions and holds on to them very strongly yes. once she's arrived at them, um, which is something that we see in other contexts played out too. And that she has a like kind of martyr slash self-sacrificing mentality. Another mm-hmm. reason that she is not a Mary Sue. Yes. Um, she like she's the one who gets to be strong and gets to be self-sacrificing in this relationship, which is a pretty typically masculine set of traits yes yeah yeah no yeah she's uh super brave super confident has faith in her plan like knows it's gonna work out pretty awesome so i kind of threw out that michael burnham is not a mary sue which is us having half of an argument the other half of which is happening on the internet uh that says that she maybe she is a mary sue um which yeah, like there's a there's been some backlash. There's been a lot of backlash aimed at Discovery. Some of it is racist and sexist. Some of it is like this is forced diversity. SJW snowflake snowflake liberals ruining my sh- TV. And some of it is sort of that in disguise. I think which is no, it's not that Michael Burnham is a black woman. It's just that. She's too competent and she's good at everything and she solves every problem every week and she's really just a Mary Sue and that's boring to watch. Which I think is not true, but do you want to define Mary Sue for us? My understanding of the term Mary Sue is that it is a character that does not have like flaws. Like anything that's presented as a flaw is actually like either a strength or is just like a cute foible. One of the prime examples of this is um, the the girl from Twilight, whatever her name is. Um, Bella. Bella, yeah. The One of the prime examples is Bella from Twilight whose only like flaw as a character is that she trips over things sometimes. Um, And so this argument about Michael Burnham being a Mary Sue because she's just so competent in everything really like overlooks the complexity of her character and the fact that she does make mistakes and she has difficulties with things and she has um, a 
personality. And a lot of emotional growth over the season. Yeah, no, she's constantly kind of like offending and alienating people and just uh, accidentally starts a war, which I kind of disagree with. I don't really think she started the war, but it's canon that people blame her for it and whatever. Right. Within the universe, she is the traitor who who instigated the war, which I think that she was... she. Whatever. Uh, she was like, acting because she thought she had some understanding about Klingon psychology that other people No, but that not. didn't even start the war. They didn't do the thing that she wanted them to do, and then the Klingons fire on them anyway. So, like, wh- that wasn't her. Right. If they'd listened to her, it wouldn't have happened. Sorry. <laughs> I have very strong feelings about this. I think it's just, like, the rumor mill. Like, everyone who runs into her is like, oh, you're the one who started the war. Like, my sister died. And it's like, I know that that's, like, what people are saying, but, like... She's just in trouble for mutiny. She didn't actually start... Okay, I'm done. Yeah. Sorry. (laughs) I have very strong feelings about this, and I don't know why I care. I hope I care about her as a character, and I think that's another reason that she's not a Mary Sue, because another one of the traits of the Mary Sue archetype is that they are, like, a very ready stand-in for the audience. Like, you can easily put your... graft your own personality onto that character because they have no personality of their own. Right. Um, Michael Burnham has a fucking personality and it is not always getting her into the best situations. She's often running into trouble because of the way that she views the world and the way that she thinks about things. Yeah. Um, So, yeah. So, not a Mary Sue... Uh, gets to make out with Ash Tyler, who is fucking sexy, by the oh, way. Oh, it's such a hot scene. They're playing, like, love and happiness. He immediately twirls her around so that he's dancing with her back. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Yeah. And so many feelings. So, and so this is, like, another interracial kiss um, yeah. that is pretty, like, uneventful in 2017 um in in that context at the very least but one of the things that i think is cool about this particular actor is that he's uh he is mixed mixed south asian english and scottish and his father was pakistani something that's like interesting to note is that he plays both ash tyler and voke because eventually they are the same person. Um, spoilers. Spoilers. <laughs> spoilers. Um, but because they needed to keep this a secret, he is billed under his deceased father's name um, as that character. And then as Ash Tyler, he's billed as himself Shazad Latif. Shazad Latif, who has this like London accent in real life, which is equally as hot as his fake American accent. Fake American accents are always hotter than, like, regular American accents. I don't know why. Just trust me on this one, you guys. I just into it. Shazad Latif and or Ash Tyler, whichever one of you wants to show up at my doorstep and serenade me, I am totally into it. Preferably with the beard. With the beard. I fucking love beards. With with the beard and his man bun. Yeah. And that might be a season two spoiler. He He gets a man bun. It's great. Some people can rock a man bun. Yeah. And he's among them. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, if they're hot. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we're, like, just generally pleased with that casting. Um, Something that 
I am, I think we are not pleased about, or at least I am in high dudgeon about, is the fact that the resolution of this episode is that Mud is like sent into the shackles of his beautiful, young, hot, rich fiance, soon to be wife. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think Rain Wilson is in like his 50s. And this, like, woman in her early 20s shows up to, like, drag him away, and he is, like, not happy about it. Um, There's a very funny three-beat earlier in the episode. He talks about, like, how the war has ruined his life because it's taken him away from his beloved Stella. And then the second time, Michael reminds him of Stella, and he's like, oh, yeah, yes, Stella, Stella, my love, and sort of, like, catches himself. And uh, the third time, they're like, it never really was about Stella, was it? You were running from her. And he's like, eh, who cares? And you're all going to die anyway, or get sold to the Klingons, whichever. Right, right. So the third time we're like, oh shit, he doesn't like this woman. And it's like really hammered home, like seconds before she shows up that he's not super into her. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm imagining he was just sort of like leading her on, but didn't really want to get married. And she's rich and powerful. Her dad is a uh, weapons salesman. Yeah, I think he's an arms dealer. Arms dealer. Oh my god, weapons salesman. <laughs> this is the same thing. Arms dealer is just like a you fancy know. term. Whatever. He he has a yeah. very excellent leather cape and ensemble. <gasps> yes, no, and her, oh my gosh, she shows up in these like bright red like Lululemon leggings and like a purple asymmetrical tunic with sequins up the sleeves and it is very very original series Mm -hmm. like it was i was very pleased to see that oh her shoes match her leggings yeah they're like great they're like of a piece it seems like there's no separation between her shoes and her leggings it's a great costume in a series with some like pretty lackluster um, non-uniform costumes, in my yes. opinion. There's, like, one other costume in this episode uh, when they're in the party where one of the, like, non-speaking extras wears a, like, a half-dress. It's, like, a red kind of mid-calf uh, sheet. And then in the <laughs> back, it's, like, illusion netting, so it looks like it's entirely backless. And I'm just like, I want... That thing, I will wear that thing. Yes, please. Um, Just to defend the fucked up nature of this ending a little bit more, uh, in the original series, like, Harry Mudd hates his wife. He does not like her. She she's like which it portrayed as this kind of uh, offensive, uh, nagging what like ball and chain stereotype where mm-hmm. she's just like wagging her finger at him and like talking in like a na 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 voice um which is itself a sexist gross. trope a sexist trope yeah but it is canon yeah and i'm like i i guess i have to forgive discovery for making this the, the solution to the episode because it's canon and there's like it then flows into what happens in the original series at the same time, the notion that marrying anybody is uh, is punishment is irritating, first of all. And the, like, add on top of that, she's significantly younger than him and hella rich. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that... That seems like no punishment in my mind for, like, you killed all the Discovery crew 53 right. times and also, like, 
incidentally killed a member of an endangered space whale species. Like, oh, yeah, we never really find out if they save the whale. I don't think they save the whale. I mean, they do. They do totally like let go of that as a plot line. But yeah. it in one in one iteration of the loop, the whale is like definitely gonna die because it has Mud's starship inside of it. Yes, and uh, they never solve that, as far as I can tell. Yeah. Oh, and then just to to go back to how like Michael is the emotional anchor for this episode. Um, the space whale become which she calls a space whale. What's a gormigander? It's a space whale. Yes. Finally, you've finally been for this. <laughs> After so many series of space whale like things that are not called space whales, we get a thing they that's called a space, whale, space whale. But it looks more like a kraken. We're not going to talk about that. It's fine. But it's <laughs> it's used as like emotional symbolism for Michael. Um, they talk about how they're so focused on their objective that they forget to pursue reproduction and um, how they're, lo- they call them lonely. It's a girl. They're like, she's all, and then Michael herself says she's all alone. And this is like right before or right after we talk about how she's never been in love. And it's pretty clear, at least on like repeat viewings, that the the space whale is like symbolic of like Michael's not being able to hook up with her crush. <laughs> Yeah, and I kind of, lo- I kind of love it. Um, Space Whale's got to get it. Michael's got to get it. Yeah, like that's the and and we solve time loop chicanery out of this, and uh, it's pretty great. So yeah, that's more or less the thoughts we had about these episodes. Yeah, um, um, we know we didn't talk about Guinan. We thought about it. We didn't for time constraints. We will talk about her. Later. It's coming. The Guinan episode's coming. Yeah. I'm really excited to talk about Guinan in the near future. Cool. Uh, welcome once again to Subspace Transmissions Log. Wait, I was going to make a sound back then. Oh, okay. Wait, make your sound. I don't know. I like zoop. Zoop. <laughs> welcome once again. This one's quick today. Uh, we're shouting on our dads. Yes. Uh, what's your dad's name? John. Thanks to Chris and John, a.k.a. our dads, who reviewed us on Podbean. We really appreciate it. Um, Once again, uh, Apple Podcast is a bit more helpful because it changes their algorithm. But however you want to review us, we love it. Hi, Papa. Thanks. Hi, Dad. Love that you're listening. Tell all your friends. All right. Thanks, Becca. (laughs) Thank you, Ryan. (laughs) Thanks for listening, everybody. And I hope you join us again next week. Live long and prosper. Peace and long life. Next week on Intertractional, Klingon Family Values, we discuss the Next Generation episode New Ground and Voyager's Barge of the Dead. Intertractional is a production of Federation and Fempire, written and produced by Ryan Ascalisi and Becca Motola Barnes. Original music by Danny Kafka. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Intertractional. Tell us what you think. Join our Facebook group to discuss this episode with us and other fans. Email us at intertractional at gmail.com. You can even send us a voice memo. Visit our website at intertractional.com for show notes, images, and citations. Intertractional is available on all podcast platforms, including iTunes. If you like this podcast, help others find it by taking a moment to rate and review us and subscribe on iTunes. It really makes a big difference. You can donate to us 
at paypal.me slash federation and fempire. That's fempire spelled like empire with an F. Because it's our lady empire. Fempire. Burn up. If you've got anything singing, do not put that in. Okay, I will not. Please. (laughs) 